It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Coin Bureau podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. He just wanted to build his thing. Yeah. He just wanted to be developing it and basically sit in front of his computer and code all day long mm. and solve problems. And instead, he finds himself having to fire people. Welcome, everyone, to the Coin Bureau podcast. My name is Guy, and this is my very good friend... Mad Mike Mooch. Welcome, Mad Mike Mooch. Before we get into the history of Ethereum and all the people behind it, all the weird and wonderful characters behind it, let's actually first talk about what it is. Mm. So... Everyone, loads of people, you'll have heard of Ethereum, obviously, because, as I say, it's the number one altcoin. It's second only to Bitcoin in terms of size and market cap, but it's a very different beast. So I think it's important to break that down first. So Ethereum is essentially a giant computer. Okay, and it's it's sometimes referred to, it's been called the world computer or a global supercomputer. Mm. And what it does, and this is a computer that is spread out across computers all over the world. And it acts as a base layer 
on which to build applications. Now, we've all heard this term before, applications, haven't we? Shortened to apps. Mm. Um, just uh, So uh, b basically, applications are their computer programs that perform specific functions that are not related to the running of the computer itself. And if you want an example of an app, you know, anything on your phone is an app. So because Ethereum is decentralized and spread across this network of computers, these apps are known as decentralized applications or DApps. DApps. Okay, so there's your first bit of jargon for the day. Yeah. DApps, uh, apps on Ethereum are known as DApps. Okay, so that... There's another, when you DApp someone up. That is entirely different. Okay. Yeah, that is, that is street slang of which I know nothing. These DApps are built using something called smart contracts. Now, smart contracts are blockchain-based programs that act according to a set of rules that are coded into them. Okay? And because they're based on a blockchain, obviously they can't be tampered with because mm. we know all about the properties of blockchain by now. So smart contracts are a bit tricky to get your head around sometimes. So I'm just going to I'm going to give a couple of more simplified explanations as to what they are. And, and I think maybe as we go along in future episodes, we'll dive into smart contracts perhaps in a bit more detail. But a, a simple explanation is to compare a smart contract to a vending machine, let's say. So you, you get, you've got your vending machine, you put your money in, and then you select what you want, you press your buttons, and then the machine dispenses what you've selected. So kind of you know, a three-stage process. And so what that means is if the right conditions are met, i.e. the right amount of money is put in and the right combination of letters and numbers is pressed in, in the case of a vending machine, then the machine acts in a certain predefined way. And there's no need for a middleman. So there's no need for anyone else or a, a, any other program to confirm it. This is, this is how the, the smart contract is coded to run. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So obviously, smart contracts get a lot more complex than that. And if you're using smart contracts to make a dApp, uh, there'll be often lots and lots of them. And you can think of them a bit like Lego bricks. So each smart contract is a Lego brick, and they're arranged in a way to, to make a dApp. That is, that is a very simplified explanation. And um, a, bit like, a bit like if you make something out of Lego, if, you, if it's built incorrectly, then you have a weak point. And this is something that we'll come back to when we talk about Ethereum, probably in the next episode, because uh, smart contracts, because they can't be tampered with, they have to be correct. Exactly. Yeah, they have to be good right from the start, because if there are bugs, and there often are, that's when you have a problem. Mm. So, yeah, I think the Lego brick and vending machine analogies are fairly, you know, a good sort of starting point to understanding smart contracts. And they can be developed for any number of uses and applications. And crucially, as I say, all without the need for a third party, because it's written in the code, how they how they act. And these applications, these dApps, all make use of blockchain technology, um, as I said earlier. So, again, it's good to reiterate that point. The, the, block, the fact that they're built on a blockchain means that they're tamper-proof. Now, smart contracts are the brainchild of a chap called Nick Sabo. And we've met Nick Sabo briefly before. Yes, he was, he was a, a Bitcoin guy, wasn't he? Yes. And he, then he was... A, um, what was, the, what was the terminology? A Bitcoin ultimist or something? Or was it? Or ma oh, maximist. Maximist. Bitcoin maxi. And yeah. then went to, then, but then was frustrated. Did he see the one he set up? 
ether? Am I t- confusing? You're confusing him. Okay. You're confusing him with another. There I go, to... making everyone stupid <laughs> once again. <laughs> a few more brain cells dead. No, um, Nick Sabo. Yes, he is. He was one of these people sort of involved early on with Bitcoin. And some people would say uh, so he's actually one of the prime candidates. A lot of people's prime candidate to maybe be Satoshi Nakamoto. Oh, he is a seriously intelligent guy. He was the chap who came up with BitGold which was this precursor to Bitcoin that uh, whoever Satoshi Nakamoto was used a lot of the ideas in BitGold to create Bitcoin. And people are thinking, okay, this was his dry run. Yeah. And now Bitcoin is his gold run. Oh, nice. Nice. Uh, Yes. So, yeah, Nick Sabo, he, um, yeah, very early on with Bitcoin, a lot of his work is is sort of clearly seen in Bitcoin, Mm. hence why a lot of people think he might be Satoshi Nakamoto. Or Satoshi just plagiarized all of his best bits. Well, quite possibly. Yeah, that is. And we should cancel him. Maybe not cancel. Okay, um, but yes, that's that's. Who are we cancelling? Well, yeah, exactly. How do we cancel Satoshi Somebody. Nakamoto? It's too late. Okay, um, you should have thought of that a long time ago. Uh. <laughs> um, and one of the actually, funnily enough, one of the other reasons why people think Nick Sabo may be Satoshi is that uh, whoever Satoshi was had a very, very strong knowledge of things like economics and history. He wasn't just a coder. He yeah. was uh, an all quite a well-rounded sort of. Uh, perspective on the world. Yeah, a Rather. polymath, some okay. would say, is the term. And Nick Sabo Kinky. is certainly right. one of those. <laughs> you like that, do yeah. Nick Sabo is certainly a polymath. He's got a blog called Unenumerated where he writes on all, uh, all number, any number of subjects, really, uh, including things on economics and the origins of money and, mm. people like, and things like that. So, yeah, he's a very, very smart guy. And he was, um, he was the sort of person who uh, first started talking about smart contracts. And he was the one who first who first explained it using that vending machine uh, analogy, analogy yeah. used earlier. So, so is that what NFTs are essentially, just smart contracts? Um, yes, it's a little more... Yeah, um, NFTs are basically tokens, mm. um, but they're built using smart contracts. Got it. But we'll... Yeah, we'll we'll touch back. on that later. Yeah. I'm jumping the gun back As to the always. vending machine. As always. The Ethereum network has its own native coin, and this is known as ETH, E-T-H. ETH, so. yeah. And it's designed to function as a kind of digital fuel for the Ethereum network. So do you remember in the same way the Bitcoin network... Has pe- sense. No, or, or uh, what are they called? Sats. Sats, yeah. So in the same way that the Bitcoin network has its own native coin, which is BTC, yeah. uh, ETH, the Ethereum network has ETH. But ETH functions in a kind of slightly different way to BTC because, as I say, it's used to basically pay for fees on the network, pay for using computation on the Ethereum network. But we'll come back to that. And, yeah, so if you want to, if you want to use any of the services built on Ethereum, then ETH is what you need. Now, I just want to touch on some of the differences between Ethereum and Bitcoin, because this very much relates to how Ethereum came into being in the first place. So let's just quickly think about Bitcoin again. So Bitcoin, as we remember, it's a payment system. Yeah, that was what Satoshi designed it to be. And it has this native coin, BTC, and that lives on its blockchain and it's used to transfer value. That is the function, really, of BTC. Now, as I think we've touched on before, that is essentially 
all that Bitcoin really does. It allows the transfer of value between users across the network with no intermediary, with no middleman. Uh, so, which makes it obviously peer-to-peer, decentralized, uncensorable, all these things that we've, we've talked about in previous episodes. And also in previous episodes, we talked about Bitcoin and we discussed its limitations. So it's got this very small block size. There's only one megabyte of information that you can fit, one megabyte of data that you can fit into a Bitcoin block. Uh, A Bitcoin block is only created every 10 10 minutes minutes or or so. Yeah, which means that the network isn't all that quick. And do you remember we also touched on on the fact that uh, development on the Bitcoin network can be really, really slow because it's so consensus. Yeah. And there's loads of arguments and back and forth before uh, any and debate before any changes can be implemented on Bitcoin. So these are all things to keep in mind. Now, there are people working on bringing added functionality to the Bitcoin network. Uh, things like the Lightning Network to make payments quicker. We've also got, there's a project called Stacks, which is looking to maybe one day bring smart contracts to Bitcoin. Mm. But for the time being, it's still fairly limited in what it can do. Now, do you also remember in uh, a previous episode, we talked about how other altcoins started to emerge? In fact, I think that was the last episode, wasn't it? And these were inspired by Bitcoin, but they were trying to do kind of different things. They were quite specific things, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So we had things like Litecoin. Dentist coin. Dentacoin. No, Dentacoin comes later. Okay. Dentacoin is, is, um, is all made possible by Ethereum. Okay. But we had Litecoin, didn't we? And, and if you remember, that was basically... Ripple. Yeah. Um, Litecoin especially was designed to be a kind of faster, more efficient form of Bitcoin. And do you remember we also had Namecoin as well, this one that was trying to be a decentralized yeah, with domain the name service. Yeah. yeah. So again, these these forked Bitcoin, these were forks of Bitcoin. They used Bitcoin's technology, but they were trying to do different things. But as you can see, I mean, they were only trying to do sort of one other different thing. They only really had one function. So there was a certain person who was deeply into Bitcoin. And he noticed this fact. He noticed that Bitcoin didn't have much in the way of functionality. And he wondered why there couldn't be a blockchain project built to perform basically any kind of function. And this person's name was Vitalik Buterin. Ah. You've heard that name? Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Vitalik. And yes. I should say, we can say Vitalik because I think if you say the word Vitalik to anyone uh, who's been in crypto for more than five minutes, they'll know who you're talking about. He's one of those people that's now so well known, if you like, that uh, he can just use his first name. Yeah. So Ethereum, basically, it begins with two things. It begins with Bitcoin, which we know all about, and it begins with Vitalik. So Vitalik is probably the most well-known and recognizable person in all of crypto. And this is for a number of reasons. Now, firstly, if you've, have you ever seen a picture of him? I'm not sure. He is an extraordinary looking guy. In fact, I'm going uh, to get a picture up for him now. And for, for listeners um, at home, if you just type in the word Vitalik into Google, then you will... Uh, then you'll get only one result. And if you go to images, there are plenty of him. That is Vitalik Buterin. So as you can see, he's quite an extraordinary looking dude. 
And um, if you're thinking, gosh, he looks awfully young, then he is, uh, because he was born in 1994 uh, in uh, a place called Kolomna, which is near Moscow. Mm-hmm. He's also extremely active in the uh, the crypto community. Okay. He tweets all the time. He's, uh, he's always kind of traveling the world, uh, appearing at conferences. So, yeah, he's a very visible figure and obviously an extremely smart guy. So... Vitalik Quickfax, as I said, born 1994 outside Moscow. His parents were computer science students at the time, so very young themselves. Uh, They separated when he was three, and they sort of both moved separately to Canada. Uh, And Vitalik ended up moving to Canada with his father when he was six years old, and they went and settled in Toronto. Now, by this point, he was already something of a child prodigy. He was apparently able to multiply three-digit numbers together uh, when he was five. Now, I can't do that now. Exactly. I, I struggle with multiplying. Unless it's 100 by... <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> Gets calculated. Just by 50. <laughs> I, I mean, I would struggle to multiply a lot of two-digit numbers together. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. Quite clearly, he had one of those maths brain. He had a brain, mm. He had a head for numbers, if you like. Mm. And he was um, he was playing a lot with computers in those early years too, which is probably the least surprising thing you've ever heard. Um, but uh, he was kind of developing games. He was building sort of rudimentary computer games and also playing with Excel spreadsheets. So again, this mm. is the sort of person that we're that we're dealing with here. And he didn't really speak properly until he was nine. He was sort of very reserved and not basically not good with words, very good with numbers, but not so with words. And, and as a result of this, he felt quite isolated when he was a child, and obviously especially at school. He was yeah. a, bit of a, a bit of a misfit, if you like. But when he was 12, he was enrolled in a specialist school, which was, um, which was sort of for very gifted pupils, much smaller class sizes and uh, much more kind of specialised subjects. And he really found his niche here. And the whole, the experience basically allowed him to nerd out to the max, yeah. if you like. So he got into things like coding, advanced maths. He got into... Dungeons and Dragons. Team. Well, yeah, World of Warcraft, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So apparently he was really, really into World of Warcraft. And uh, so one of the stories I heard was that his father, Dimitri, introduced him to Bitcoin around about 2011 and said, hey, Vitalik, check this out. This is awesome. It must be so weird having us just like, hey, hey, stop playing poker. (laughs) <laughs> what you're you're clearly very yeah. good at that game. Yeah. Why do you this game is called Stocks and Bonds. Go <laughs> go get involved in See this little math prodigy. That. Yeah. It's um well, yeah, perhaps perhaps that was uh, his thinking behind introducing him to Bitcoin. So, yeah, apparently one day he was like, yeah, check this out. Have a look. And um Vitalik was apparently sort of he looked at it, he kind of looked over Bitcoin briefly and completed like, it and then <laughs> Yeah. Just, yeah, okay. And um I think he the story goes that he sort of went, well, what's backing this? It has no value. And then he went back to playing World of Warcraft, or so the story goes. And there's also another story uh, that I, I I had a hard time corroborating, but there is quite a lot of uh, speculation about it on there on the internet. Um, and he does reference it himself in a sort of little biography that he wrote on, on, on a website somewhere. And this was, he said, uh, I'll quote from it here, actually. He said, 
I happily played World of Warcraft during 2007 to 2010, but one day Blizzard, which is the game developer, I think, removed the damage component from my beloved Warlock's Siphon Life spell. I cried myself to sleep, and on that day I realised what horrors centralised services can bring. <laughs> oh, my God. I soon decided to quit. That is incredible. <laughs> this is, yeah... This is... Uh, That's one way of getting messages to people, though. You know, like, there is this, uh, you know, uh, you know what, what's going on with the world at the moment or with wars and stuff and, you know, all these payments getting stopped. It's like, okay, cool. I suppose the only way that you... Sometimes the only way that you really appreciate what's going on in the wider world... When it happens it, to something that's relevant to you. Yeah, when it impacts on your life. Yeah. And it's a nice story. Like I say, I, I, I think there's probably... It, it may not be it may not be 100% true. It may, um, but you know what? That doesn't matter. Stories are great. Like, sometimes they don't have to be true. It kind of is... Ju it's, it's, it's... Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. story yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anyhow, whatever whatever the story was, he he apparently went back to Bitcoin mm. after initially dismissing it. He rediscovered it and sort of got orange pilled, if you like, and started reading and learning more about it. So he went really fell down the rabbit hole. And uh, about this time, also he went on to read computer science at the University of Waterloo, which is in Canada as well. So, um. He's discovered Bitcoin yeah, and he's decided that rather than try and mine it or buy it, he decided that he'd actually try and earn some instead. So he got this gig. He found someone on the Internet who was willing to pay him five BTC per article to write about it. And obviously he understood it very well because he's galactically intelligent. Mm. And what was also interesting was that he had a real knack of writing about it clearly. So he was able to write about He was good it. with words, just not saying them. Yeah, perhaps better on paper. Mind you, remember that since he'd gone to this sort of elite oh, so school, he'd, sort of he'd kind of come out of his shell a lot more. And I, I think I mentioned earlier that he was on the debate team, apparently. So, okay, so yeah. Yeah, and if you if you see speeches of him speaking in public, he's he's clearly you know he's clearly quite a confident speaker. I mean, he's got a very sort of uh, he he's got a kind of odd demeanour about him. He's not like the world's greatest orator, perhaps, but he's clearly a lot more a lot. He's clearly comfortable speaking in front of large amounts of people, which mm. is a, more than can be said. I, I I think probably for most um, computer geeks, yeah, <laughs> for want of a better world term. of Warcraft fans. Yeah, I imagine he's more articulate than most World of Warcrafters. Mm. Are we are we doing a massive disservice to the World of Warcraft community? Probably good. Yeah, <laughs> cast a spell on I me. <laughs> So this this ability of Vitalik's to write very clearly and accessibly about Bitcoin, this got him noticed by a Romanian chap who was an kind of online poker player, amongst other things, a Bitcoin devotee called Mihai Alicia. Mm. And he approached him to he approached Vitalik to help start a publication that was going to be called Bitcoin Magazine. And so they went into they kind of went into business together, and Vitalik sort of wrote for this new entity, Bitcoin Magazine, uh, which is still going strong, actually. Okay. Um, it's a very respected uh, respected news source, online source about all things uh, Bitcoin. Um, but Vitalik obviously is is no longer involved. But he was he was writing a huge amount of the content, a huge amount of the articles for it in its early days. So he began, he was writing for Bitcoin magazine Vitalik. He was getting paid for it in 
in Bitcoin, obviously. And all this time, he was also studying uh, at, at the University of Waterloo. And he was studying like, I think he was supposedly studying about four or five advanced courses all at the same time and doing kind of research assistant work as well. Whereas, you know, people like you and me, for instance, sort of struggled to basically complete. Struggled to get thing. into like your lecture on time. Yeah. Yeah, Vitalik basically, it it all sounds a bit kind of bleak in a way because he was apparently just getting up, have a quick bit of breakfast, work, lunch, work. You know, it was basically so just if, that. if that's what he's enjoying. Then fine. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess he, I guess he was, it, it, yeah, enjoying doing it. But I don't think he had much in the way of human contact. I think it was very sort of laser focused work. Anyhow, um, luckily for him, the price of Bitcoin went up around this time quite significantly, and he eventually found that he was sitting on about $10,000 worth of it. So he and there was also this crazy story from around this time that he was about to go and work for none other than Jed McCaleb. I can't believe how often Jed McCaleb keeps mm. coming up in our conversations. Uh, he was going to go for work and work for Jed McCaleb at Ripple. That's where Jed was at the time. But um, because I think it was because Ripple was a, a relatively young company at the time, uh, it made it difficult for Vitalik to get a US visa. Remember, he's based yeah. in Canada at this time. So so that fell through. But um, that's that's crazy. Yeah, that's it's a, a real small world, isn't it? Yeah. In it's also a weird kind of alternate history as well. Cause yeah, yeah. Sliding doors sort of moment. Yeah, exactly. So uh, this visa fell through. So instead, he decided to take a break from university in this is summer 2013. And he decided to go traveling. He decided to take his gap yard. Um, <laughs> so he visited the USA. He went to Spain. He went to Italy. Uh, he was in the Netherlands for a bit as well. He was. Uh, this is, uh, so this just brings back to the forefront how young this person is. Yeah. Well, actually, what he was doing, um, he was going, he was basically exploring Bitcoin. He was exploring the world of Bitcoin. So, and it's a, it's a kind of weird odyssey that he goes on because he ends up staying in these kind of commune, um, these sort of communes in, in Spain. And I think he stayed in a squat in Italy for, for a while. And he basically met a whole load of Bitcoiners, basically hackers, programmers, all these sorts of people. And uh, in these various countries, and some of them are really sort of amazing characters, you know, kind of anarchists and libertarians and people like that. And so he basically learned a lot more about Bitcoin from them. Really? Okay. So there's a kind of like a Bitcoin safari. Yeah. Bitcoin safari. Yeah. I like it. How can we market that? <laughs> the Bitcoin safari. And in Israel, he ended up working uh, on a project called Colored Coins. And this basically looked to use the Bitcoin blockchain as a means of transmitting data about real world assets. So I think basically what it did, it used a, a tiny BTC transaction, like you know one sat or something, to securely transfer ownership of an asset on the Bitcoin blockchain. Got it. So this was, yeah, I mean, this is a sort of early experiment in, in seeing, you know, in, in kind of testing what else Bitcoin could, could be do. Yeah. yeah. He recognized that all these people, um, all these people that he'd met, uh, these Bitcoiners, were working on projects that kind of were building on top of Bitcoin, um, but were really, as I said earlier, they were only designing things with one specific purpose. And this was when he had his moment. He was like, why not have a blockchain that would allow you to build anything you liked 
on top of it that could support any number of different mm. programs and protocols. So by November 2013, he's wound up in San Francisco. And the story goes, uh, apparently, that he, he went out for a, a kind of long walk one day on, uh, I think it was a place called the Presidio. And he kind of, f on this walk, he's a very big fan of walking, Vitalik. I am too. I, it's like, it's it, you're just getting away from things. Yeah. Listening to a podcast or having a think. Yeah, just sort of clearing your head. Yeah. Yeah, getting out and getting out in the fresh air. Well, there's there's another thing that you and Vitalik have in common, yeah. along with World of Warcraft. Mm. Um, so, yeah, apparently on this walk, he kind of figured out how he was going to do it. And he went back to the apartment he was staying at and he began writing the Ethereum white paper. Mm. Do you like the way I gave it sort of the Ethereum this summer. White paper. <laughs> yeah. This summer. So and yeah, this so this is this is where um you remember you said earlier about the about the name Ethereum. Well this is where it comes from. So he he was looking for a name for this project. And obviously as a kid he read a lot of science fiction. Again, something else that he has in common with you. <laughs> and he came across the word ether. Mm. Now, ether concerns, it, it relates to a 19th century idea of, uh, of a, this supposed material that, that, fit, that supposedly filled the universe and carried light waves. This was a, this was a, a theory for a long time. It's not actually true. It doesn't no. exist, but it's, it's a nice idea. And that word still, is still with us because if, if you say something's floating around in the ether. So, uh, Vitalik, this is, where, this is where the word ethereum came from. He thought, yeah, that sounds good. So, shall we float off into the ether now and take a quick break? This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, Plus, save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. 
Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We finished that first section off uh, the Ethereum white paper had come into being. Vitalik had, had written it all down, written his idea down. So on the 27th of November 2013, Vitalik sent the Ethereum white paper out via an email to a handful of friends and acquaintances, people that he knew in the in the kind of Bitcoin and Virgin. His, uh, his Bitcoin safari people. Yeah, yeah, his homies, his Bitcoin homies. And let's let's just remember, let's just touch back on the point that at this moment in time he was 19 years old 
That's mental. It's crazy, isn't it? He had this nineteen. Nineteen. One of those times you you feel you feel really grown up because you know you're not you're, eighteen you're, anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you're an adult, and then you look back and you realise what a total idiot you were. Well, not Vitalik. No. Uh, because when he was nineteen, he wrote the Ethereum. <laughs> I know, I know. It really makes me feel stupid. Oh. Anyhow, when he sent this out, he was fully expecting it to get basically pulled to shreds because, as he kind of put it, the idea seemed so simple that he imagined that either basically someone else would have thought of it and he just hadn't you know, noticed or there was a really good reason why no one had come up with this idea. So he sort of sent it out and fully expected to get, you know, that ton of emails back saying you're an idiot or this is why it doesn't work. And do you remember um, when Satoshi first sent the Bitcoin white paper out, he only actually got two replies. Yeah. And both of those were sort of pointing out uh, flaws with it. Mm. So, I But I suppose once, once Bitcoin is up and running, people are a bit more yeah. on board with, oh, this could actually work. Yeah, that's true. That's true, and and at this point, obviously, Ethereum was was just an idea. It was just it was just you know a, a, sh a short white paper. Anyhow, this didn't happen. Um, he didn't get pulled to shreds, and people basically read it and they got excited about it and they forwarded it on to others. So, and it's at this point that uh, some other characters come into the story who are all going to end up playing a fairly big role in, in Ethereum's development, in Ethereum's story. So we'll have a look at some of those now. One of the first of these people to receive Vitalik's email was a chap called Anthony D'Orio. And he is a Canadian entrepreneur. He'd discovered Bitcoin and he'd basically become active in the Bitcoin community. He'd organized Bitcoin meetups in Canada. He'd created a gambling site called uh, Satoshi Circle, uh, which obviously used BTC. And then he'd sold Satoshi Circle and he'd got, I think it was about 20, oh, 2,400 BTC or something like that. Quite a few which uh, by this point was worth quite a lot. So he was a pretty wealthy guy. And he was, well, he was basically a, a Bitcoin millionaire in that he, his Bitcoin holdings made him a, a millionaire in, in dollar terms. Nice. So, and yeah, Anthony Doria, he's a, he's a kind of clean cut looking guy. If you, if you ever see a picture of him, he's, yeah, he, he's not your sort of typical computer geek looking guy. Um, he's basically a money man, not really mm. a technical guy. So when Anthony read the Ethereum white paper, he sensed that it could be a really great idea, but he didn't really understand some of the more techie stuff. So he sent it on to a friend of his uh, called Charles Hoskinson. Mm. Now, Charles Hoskinson is another, so he's a massive figure in crypto. He is a really fascinating character. So he's a mathematician from Colorado and he's kind of got, you know, libertarian leanings like, like so many in crypto. Now, he's actually, at this point in time, he's still in his 30s. Uh, but if you ever see a picture of him, he looks and he, he kind of looks like and he comes across as someone in his 60s. Okay. He's, yeah, he looks like, he looks like a, basically a maths professor. Yes. Um, and the whole, sort you know, his beard, glasses. Um, elbow pads on his blazer. Yeah, I think he almost definitely has elbow pads on his blazer. Uh, he was another early Bitcoiner. Um, he'd created something called the Bitcoin Education Project, basically putting, you know, making, making it easier to learn about Bitcoin. And he'd also founded a company called BitShares, which was initially a, a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin exchange. 
and it sort of amongst other things it kind of grew into this this other entity but he'd fallen out with his co-founder who was a chap called Dan Larimer now Dan Larimer is another sort of big early figure in crypto we'll we'll talk about him in another episode I think um but basically these two had fallen out BitShares had Charles Hoskinson was kind of no longer really involved with BitShares so he was casting around for something else to do and lo and behold his friend Anthony Diorio sends him this white paper for Ethereum now, Charles obviously is, uh, you know, understands the tech of it a lot more. Um, and as a mathematician, he sort of brings a, you know, has a different slant on it to Anthony. So he reads it and and thinks, yeah, there's definitely potential here. And I should say at this point, Charles is now best known as the founder of Cardano, which mm. is another smart contract blockchain, which is seen as a rival to Ethereum. So... It gives you a taste, perhaps, of what may happen. Yeah, of, of where this may end up going. Anyhow, we'll we'll get to that. So, there are a couple of others who receive Vitalik's email with the white paper, um, and uh, again, sort of jump on board with the project. Uh, one was uh, Mihai Alisia, who who was his um, uh, co-founder of the Bitcoin Magazine, and then there was another chap who's a little mysterious. His name is Amir Chetrit, and not an awful lot is known about him. He had worked on the Coloured Coins project with Vitalik. That's how they knew each other. Uh, he's a US-Israeli citizen. He dropped out of a computer science degree, apparently, and had it been in real estate, uh, but prior to 2008, and then obviously the financial crash came along, and um, that, that wasn't good for people in real estate. And that is pretty much as much as we know of him. He's he apparently sort of is very you know very low profile these days. He apparently does support sort of startup blockchain projects and things like that. He kind of keeps an interest in the space. Nice, but he's yeah he's very Just much did. out of the public eye. Mm. And that, yeah, so that's Amir Chetrit. Then it also makes its way the white paper to another chap called Gavin Wood. And this is a bloke from. Uh, from here in the UK. He's an Englishman from Lancashire and he studied computer science at York and then he did a, a PhD in music visualisation. Um, now, I think if I remember rightly, he'd, he'd sort of sold this programme, sold this technology that he'd been working on. I think he'd sold it to a few clubs and stuff like that. So it was obviously going somewhere. Anyhow, Gavin Wood, he'd become interested in Bitcoin like everyone else, and he'd met some of the same people in the community that Vitalik had, including um, Mihai and, and others. And when he read the white paper, he was working on a startup. Uh, this was a kind of legal startup, and I, I, got the, I got the blurb from the internet about it. And it apparently enables law firms to leverage technology in their workflow processes. Okay. It sounds boring as hell, yeah. if you ask me. Um, anyhow, so he was working on that at the time. He'd been forwarded Vitalik's email, and so, again, he read it, became interested in Ethereum, and he was sort of wondering, am I going to go with this legal project that, you know, technology and their workflow process, whatever that means, am I going to do this or am I going to do something else? And then Ethereum turned up and he was like, hmm, okay, this could be actually what I'm supposed to do with my life. So he sent Vitalik an email offering his services and he said, look, if you need help coding it, I'm your man. So Vitalik um, got back in touch and said, yeah, if you can you know, do a bit of this, that and the other, a bit of, bit of coding, that would be great. So actually Gavin became the first person to make a change to Ethereum source, source code. 
okay. and that was back in December 2013. So not long after the white paper went out. So he was one of the sort of early developers, Gavin Wood, attached to the project. And he's now best known as the founder of Polkadot, which is another crypto project <laughs> that many see as a rival to Ethereum. Got it. Again, you can sort of perhaps guess from that where this is going. One other chap worth mentioning at this point is a chap called Jeff Wilker. Uh, he was a Dutchman. He was uh, is a Dutchman. He's working w- was working on a project called Mastercoin, uh, uh, which Vitalik had initially pitched his idea for Ethereum at, and the Master- Mastercoin's founder hadn't been all that impressed. Mm. Um, so it had sort of gone nowhere. So it, it, Vitalik had basically gone off and, right, I'm going to do it myself. So Jeff, uh, who's again a bit of a, quite a private sort of figure, he also began doing some work on Ethereum kind of in uh, on the side, on the quiet, if you like. So then uh, this takes us to January 2014. And all of these guys we just talked about, apart from Mihai and Jeff, all met up at the Bitcoin conference in Miami in January 2014. And it's been decided amongst them. So they'd all been kind of communicating. They'd all been emailing and Skyping and kind of starting to flesh out this white paper. And they'd reached the decision that they would unveil Ethereum at this Bitcoin conference and then hold a crowd sale of ETH, the native coin, the following week to basically raise the funds to develop it. So... They, Anthony, uh, who's, as I said, was kind of the money man, he basically funded their stay in Miami, rented them out a nice big mansion. He paid for Gavin to fly over from London because Gavin was pretty skint. And this group all shared this mansion in Miami and basically geeked out together, Uh, got coding, got talking about Ethereum, what they were going to do with it. And this stay in Miami is kind of a harbinger of things to come because a lot of arguments started although they were although they were doing lots of work on building ethereum and 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 figuring out what it was going to be and what it was going to do there were kind of clashes of opinion, opinion ego yeah opinion and ego um it sounds very miami doesn't it it sounds so miami like that's what happens in miami people get a bit big for their boots and and just it's all it's all very flash, isn't it? Yeah, and just argue about it. Yeah. Um and yeah, there was there was a lot of arguments apparently over who was gonna be a founder. I've seen Scarface, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like that. Chainsaws <laughs> in bathrooms <laughs> and yeah. People getting thrown Say up. hello to my little friend called Ether. <laughs> <laughs> just comes out yeah. brandishing a laptop. <laughs> 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 so yeah, there were a lot of arguments over who was going to be called, who was going to get to be called a founder, and who was going to be what? entitled to how much ETH and the crowd sale. And basically, Charles Charles Hoskinson he wanted to be CEO. Uh, Gavin Wood wanted to be CTO, Chief Technology Officer. Everyone wanted to be recognised as a co-founder because they obviously they obviously felt like you invested know, and wanted. They thought it was going to be big, and they wanted. Yeah, yeah, they believed in it, and so they wanted to position themselves. To benefit from it, which I, yeah, I mean, I think is fair enough, really. You know, mm. bear, bear in mind that they were working on this pretty much for free. They weren't really getting paid, so I think you can, I think you can forgive them to an extent to being sort of like, okay, well, fine, I'll work, I'll do this work. I, I think this is a great project, but I am going to want rewards for it down the line. But as we'll see, these kind of these arguments kind of got out of hand a little bit. And, yeah, we talk about these these kind of ego clashes that they had. Of all the people basically sharing this house in Miami, Gavin Wood felt that he was the only one who was actually working on Ethereum. 
he was the only one who was sat at a laptop all day basically coding this thing up um, and like I said earlier, he'd also done some work, uh, pretty a, a lot of quite hard work on it back in the UK before he flew out mm. to Miami. So he very much felt that he was sort of one of the real driving forces behind actually building the thing. Um, and there was tension between him and Anthony, who was the money man, who was responsible for you know for, for funding this venture and I guess doing the publicity and things like that. There was there was tension between these two. Mm. Two ends of the spectrum, if you like. <laughs> so on the 26th of January 2014, Vitalik made a speech and presentation at this Bitcoin conference, essentially kind of unleashing, yeah, unleashing Ethereum, unveiling it. And it was really well received. Um, especially seeing it was a Bitcoin conference. I was going to say, like, yeah. But I suppose this is before people got so tribal about it, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this was this was, this was was before things started. Before, yeah. Really, yeah, really, um, really polarized. So from this point on, Ethereum starts to, the, a lot of hype starts to build up around it. However, there were problems. This crowd sale that they wanted to have that was going to, you know, sell, basically sell off the ETH, in order to raise actual funds to develop it, that had to be postponed um, because there were questions about the legality of it. Basically, uh, the money men were worried that the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, might be on them for selling securities. Now, we talked about securities. Mm. I mean, securities are basically any financial product that can be bought and sold. But you have to trade, if, if you want to trade securities, especially in the United States, you have to have a license. And if you sell unregistered securities, then the SEC will be down on you like, like a ton of bricks. Mm. So rather than risk getting, getting a, a knock on the door from the SEC, they decided to postpone the crowd sale. Um, so the following month, February 2014, uh, Gavin uh, Gavin Wood and Jeff Wilker, they were added as co-founders. Um, they were officially sort of sworn in as co-founders, if you like, along with a chap called Joe Lubin. Mm. Now, this is an, he is another Canadian entrepreneur, but he was a few years older than the rest of the guys. So he was in his late 40s around this time. Um, bear in mind, Vitalik obviously is 19. Charles was only 26 around this time. Gavin was only 33. So everyone was pretty young. Only young so, yeah. yeah, so Joe Lubin was very much the sort of old man of the group. I mean, having said that, he's only in his late 40s. Uh, and he had he'd had quite a um, a busy career. He'd worked at Goldman Sachs for a time. He'd been involved in AI research, software engineering. Uh, he'd done consulting. He'd co-founded a hedge fund, which basically meant that he was minted. Mm. Obviously, very very wealthy. And he'd met Anthony DiOrio basically through the Canadian kind of Bitcoin scene. They'd met at one of these meetups that um, Anthony had uh, had organised. And Joe was sort of more more across the kind of legal issues uh, and uh, that that were going to arise from from running this crowd sale. So he was a, a, a kind of a, a good person to have, a sort of wise head um, to go. Hang on a sec, you know, we can't do it like this. Um, so yeah, so he was the kind of last person brought on board as a as a, as a co-founder, and he is now best known for running Consensus, uh, which is a blockchain startup incubator. He's moved on from Ethereum, which again gives you an idea of perhaps where this is all going. Mm. Let's take another quick break, and then. We're heading off to Switzerland. Okay, for the final third of this story arc. Yes, exactly. 
This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings 
from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everyone, for part three of Ethereum Introduction. Ethereum yes. part one. <laughs> part three of part one of Ethereum. Yes. So we're on our way to Switzerland. Wonderful. Because about a month after the Bitcoin conference in Miami, where Ethereum was unveiled to the world, the Ethereum team set up a base in Switzerland because basically um, favorable tax conditions for this crowd sale that they wanted to do. And yeah, I mean, the Swiss are generally a lot more chilled out about regulations and all that sort of thing. So they they went they went over and they initially kind of bounced around between various kind of Airbnbs for a bit until eventually uh, someone, I think it was Anthony actually, found them uh, a big house uh, which became known as the spaceship because it looked like a spaceship. Okay. Uh, and this was in a place called Zug. Which, Zug. Which, yeah, Zug. Zug. Which is a very nice, rich area. Of, I mean, aren't all areas of Switzerland rich? But apparently a particularly rich area, uh, which is not far south of Zurich. Ah. So they were in the spaceship in Zug, this big old house that they uh, that they managed to rent out. And this basically became a kind of live workspace and the centre of the whole Ethereum operation, basically. And there was a large crowd of people constantly kind of coming and going over the next few months. It seems months. to be a little pattern here mm. with sort of technology startups you know when facebook happened didn't they get some that's right they had a house in palo alto yeah and they just sort of all just lived breathed the the sort of yeah the and project yeah i mean you've got to take the social network the movie with a pinch of salt haven't you but apparently jumping into the swimming pool from the roof and things like that. yeah so. i don't know if they were doing this in zug no, I don't think there was. This was Zug was, I think, a bit more, um, a bit more restrained in that. I don't think they had a swimming pool. No, for one thing. Um, but yeah, I, you're right. I guess yeah. This this thing of a, of a of a new technology company emerging and everyone sort of as a team together, they kind of wake up. They're a bit more uh, integrated into each other's lives as opposed to just uh, sort of a startup where people have got separate lives, more distractions, and kind of yeah. And so there was a large crowd of people coming and going all the time from the spaceship. 
Uh, and this included the likes of uh, Mihai and his girlfriend Roxana. Uh, then we had Anthony, Charles, Gavin, Vitalik, as well as a whole load of other kind of engineers and developers and designers and people's assistants and all this, all, all these sorts of people. It was a kind of constantly changing cast of characters. Although I think the, the same, those people I mentioned by name earlier were sort of were kind of fixtures for most of it. But they some sometimes they'd go off for you know for conferences or or you know very other trips abroad so it was all yeah but it sounds like a real kind of pressure cooker environment because as you can imagine um, all these people living and working together and, and they really were crammed in I mean this was a big old house but they were all kind of sleeping on mattresses on the floor mm. uh, you know several people to a room a couple would have to sort of be on one mattress in the same room as someone else it's so yeah, as you can imagine, it, it all got a bit pressurised, and they um, they apparently let off steam. They would watch Game of Thrones; that was a favourite of theirs. Uh, they would have barbecues, and they would go on bike rides. Nice. So, yeah, not quite throwing themselves into the swimming pool from the roof, but then, as I say, I don't think they had a swimming pool. Now, this sort of time, um, I, I want to shout out a, a particularly good book on this subject. There are two really great books on Ethereum and uh, that, that talk a lot about these early days. One is one by Camilla Russo called The Infinite Machine. And then another more recent one is a book by Laura Shin, who is another crypto podcaster and journalist and writer. Her book is called The Cryptopians. And again, this it focuses on the early days of Ethereum. And she, Laura Shin, conducted a whole load of interviews um, that, uh, that I got to talk to her about. Actually, I met her in London uh, a couple of weeks ago. Nice. Yeah, and we were talking about the book. And yeah, this period, like people's kind of egos and what they got up to in the house kind of really sort of surfaced. And um, I mean, Charles uh, Hoskinson in particular apparently kind of pissed a lot of people off and supposedly talked quite a lot of bullshit, um, which is obviously contested. Again, there was this real kind of clash of egos and some people just really didn't get along. And I think also because... You know, they were trying to they were trying to build this thing. They were kind of breaking new ground. You know, this something like this hadn't really been been done before. So everyone was still kind of fighting out, fighting their particular corner, and trying to do their particular work, but also wanting the kind of recognition for what they were doing. And this, so this tension over who had what role and who was doing the actual work it just got kind of worse and worse and what they ended up with was i guess a kind of general split between the techie and creative people so the likes of gavin wood you um jeff who was uh, sort of there occasionally uh mihai people like that and then the kind of management and money types which are the likes of charles anthony uh, amir and joe so and then you had vitalik kind of caught in the middle as the sort of, you know, the godhead, if you like. And really, I mean, he was, all he wanted to do, I think, was just build this thing. But obviously, because he was the figurehead, he was, you know, the, the, the public face of it uh, to a large extent as well. So the techie ones, the likes of Gavin and, and Jeff, felt that they were the ones who were actually doing the work of building Ethereum. And the others were, they couldn't really see what they were contributing they would go to conferences or they would do interviews to promote it and stuff but actually the actual work of coding this thing which was a huge job the the techie the tech guys felt that that was what they were doing and and they were the ones making the real contribution 
to Ethereum. And Gavin was the one who actually wrote the Ethereum yellow paper. Mm. Now, the yellow paper is is um, is a fairly common term, especially in crypto and, and elsewhere. A yellow paper basically enlarges on a white paper but goes into more technical detail. So the white paper is generally just a kind of synopsis. Headline. Yeah, it might go into a bit of – it might go into the tech a little bit, but really it should just be a general overview, the white paper, of what the project is. And then you kind of get into the nitty-gritty of it in the yellow paper. And as I say, Gavin is the one who actually wrote Ethereum's yellow paper. But he claims that others who were around about the spaceship at that time actually themselves contributed a lot less in his eyes, but were uh, in line to get the same amount of ETH from the crowd sale, which was which was scheduled to happen mm. at some point in the future. So again, the, the real tension. I guess, I guess it all came down to money, really. Mm. It, it, I think also. Yeah. Uh, Recognition, isn't it? It's money and recognition. Yeah, and, yeah. And no, fair everyone, enough. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. But 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 that recognition is rewarded in in money because the more recognition you get, really, the more money you get. Yeah. But no, I think I, yeah. Let's not let's not do these guys too much of a disservice. I mean, obviously, let's, they need money no, because they need money to work. Oh, you want to do them yeah. disservice? Let's let's serve let's, everyone. Let's, let's character assassinate every single one of them. Mm. Um, no, I'm sure. I, I'm sure they were motivated uh, as much by wanting the project to succeed and wanting to be a part of that and have their efforts recognised. What happens with like these kind of it, as as with many sort of uh, highly motivated individuals, there is a competitive element to it. You see it a lot in sports. Mm-hmm. You know where where people are so competitive they have to be number one. You see a lot in like business as well. You know, and sometimes when you get a lot of these characters together, they have uh, an inflated ego or or confidence in themselves and they may not recognize everything that is happening because they are so uh, necessarily narcissistical. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm the best. I'm believed. This is what we're doing, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and in some aspects, you need that to become number one at whatever you're doing. Yeah. But when you're put together with others, it can be quite... Rub people up the wrong way. Mm. I guess there's there's always going to be some some kind of jockeying for position within mm. that group, which also happens to be the, the the thing that you're working for. But within that social group as well, yeah. you know, who is the who is the alpha male? Who is the who's the daddy? <laughs> yeah, I guess what it is, we can't we can't blame these people too much for for acting in the way that they did because of the because of kind of the natural order of things the way that human beings are and i think the enormous amounts of pressure that mm. they were under you know they had to deliver on this project they kind of they kind of really committed themselves to it and as i said they weren't really being paid at this point and i guess the the tech the techie guys had had their view on it it's like well we're the ones sitting at laptops all day long coding this thing doing the nuts and bolts what are, what are all these other guys doing Whereas people like Anthony and Joe, the the tech, the, the the management guys, the money men, they have, they would have had their own view. It's like, well, a we're funding this. This is coming. You know, if it wasn't for our money, you guys wouldn't be here. Mm. So shut up and write your code. And also, I guess, yeah, the the promotion of it. Somebody somebody needs to do. Somebody needs this to get the word out. This could just be another thing that just gets swept under. This could be another digicash. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, it's yeah. You can't just you can't just build something and then I, I guess expect it to just magically 
become uh, mm. become popular, you've got to go out and promote it. You've got to talk about it. You've got to. And I think there's marched. maybe there's a bit of naivety with the ages of people in there as well. Yeah, you know I think I mean? that's a re- yeah, I think that's a really good point. Remember just how young some of these people are, and I mean even in your even in your thirties, mid twenties, you don't understand late twenties, early thirties. You're not, you know, you're not quite experience is everything isn't it anyway i feel we're dancing around some drama okay. let's get into yeah, it yeah let's get let's get on to the drama okay so there were disputes over how much eth everyone would eventually be entitled to when the crowd sale happened as well as actual people's future salaries because yeah as i say no one's being paid at this time Charles became kind of increasingly unpopular for his behavior, supposedly, uh, while Amir was still working on colored coins. And many felt that... Well, Why are you on. doing that when we've got this? Exactly. Yeah. So there was tension there. And I, yeah, I think everyone just pressure cooked together. So, and this was made worse by the fact that the regulatory issues which had delayed the crowd sale, they still hadn't been resolved. Um, because as you can imagine, if you've ever dealt with anyone legal which i'm sure you have yeah um probably a different type of <laughs> probably um, but these the defendant did, please rise yeah <laughs> in your case they fast-tracked you <laughs> um but yeah any sort of legal thing these things just drag on and on and on so the the crown sale kept getting delayed and it became a bit of a sort of run joke point, i yeah. think yeah and and i think it's worth again just mentioning how young Vitalik was. Vitalik is at the centre of all this. He's being pulled in all directions. People are trying to, you know, because he's the main guy, people are, are, are trying to kind of manipulate him in a way. Mm. I, don't think that's, I don't think that's too strong a, a term to use. And people obviously wanted stuff from him. And here he is, so young, sort of 19, 20 years old, all this kind of pressure on him. And what really emerges, especially from Laura Shin's book, is that he's a guy who found it quite difficult to say no to people. Mm. And I can really sympathize with that. You, at that age, you do. Yeah. And I think I, I think there are there are some people who 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 don't necessarily struggle with that too much, who, who are very, you know, who are quite good at being direct. Um, but. I mean, I'm not one of those people, for instance. I, I can sympathize with Vitalik like that. I find it quite difficult to say no to people all the time, especially if they're, you know, approaching you in a very sort of friendly way and they want something. Actually, sort of turning them down can be quite difficult. And I think that's probably the only thing that Vitalik and I have in common. Um, but, yeah, I do, I do sympathize with him. I think he was in a really difficult spot at this time, especially for one so young. But there was another, the, the really big split I guess, that emerged around this time was, wasn't was so much around money, or perhaps it was. It was basically whether or not Ethereum should be run as a for-profit or a non-profit enterprise. And this was uh, this was something that there was a, a lot of debate over. And as you can imagine, I guess it does come down to money, doesn't it? Mm. But certain people in... I think money, but also trust. Yeah. Because as you say, if it's, if it's a for-profit thing... Uh, if it's decentralized and it's kind of like, okay, cool, this is just, you know, like Bitcoin, it's not really full profit. No, no, no one. Yeah, th- there's no over, there's no overseeing entity that Who profits from Bitcoin. off the top of it. No. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, exactly right. So, and I, and I guess, yeah, th- this, there was a huge amount of debate about this because there are sort of non-profit enterprises out there. Uh, a good example is uh, Mozilla, you know, who developed the Mozilla, mm. the Firefox browser. F- um that, that that technology is completely open source. Anyone can use it. It was just kind of given to the world. Ditto um, Linux. Linux. Linux, yeah. Um, so those are good examples of non-profits. 
So there was, uh, you know, a, a fairly even split. I think half the sort of people were like, "No, this needs to be a non-profit. Ethereum is is something to benefit all of mankind." And you know, obviously, those involved with it from the beginning can, you know, will get paid, but the enterprise itself itself should be non-profit. Whereas people, on the other hand, are going, "No, I mean, if you want the, if you want to develop this thing, it's got to make money." Mm. Again, you can see both sides of the argument, I think. Um, but these resentments and arguments, they kind of bubbled away beneath the surface while all the while Ethereum is slowly starting to take shape. You know, the, the work is being done. So then on the 3rd of June 2014, it all kicked off. Basically, these, these resentments, these issues, uh, interpersonal issues and everything else – they came to the surface and it was decided uh, to get a big meeting to get basically everyone together. And people came, people flew in from other parts of the world in order to be there for this meeting. And they all sat down and basically hashed everyone, it out. Yeah, everyone. See started, what I did there? Very good. Hashed it out. Hashed it out. Just, yeah, just fired up a few blunts. And <laughs> no, no, I meant like, like hashing power. Oh, hash. God, that's an even better joke than I thought it was. <laughs> My expectations are set so low. Um, yeah, they hashed it out. Like yeah. in true geek style, they hashed it out. Thank God we weren't there. Um, and yeah, so everyone, they sort of sat around this big, big table in the living area and kind of everyone just said their stuff in turn. And yeah, it all got, it all got pretty, pretty heated. Some people basically wanted uh, Charles and Amir gone. They were like, these guys, you know, they're, they're not, they're not contributing. We don't like them. Whatever it is, they 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 have other interests. They should go. Whereas others thought they should stay. Bit of a Lord of the Flies sort of situation. It yeah, Lord. Yeah, it really was kind of Lord of the Flies, and it basically came down to Vitalik mm. to decide. Um, and so yeah, it's brilliantly described in the books. Basically, they, he sort of goes out on the terrace and basically has to sort of sit there alone and think about it for a long time again remember just how young he is having to mm. make these sort of decisions and basically it came down Charles and um, uh, Amir were both booted out they were both yeah tough decision to make really tough decision to make um, Vitalik but yeah he thought about it and he, I, I think what he did was basically announce okay um, Ethereum is going to continue with the following people as founders and basically named everyone apart from Charles and Amir so it was a bit like, um, you know, a school like picking teams at, uh, <laughs> at sports. Yeah, in the playground. Yeah, someone's always got to be last. Yeah, it was usually me. Or I was trying to think um, one of those horrible sort of TV talent show auditions. It's like yes, the following people will be coming to London. Stand up, all the people sitting down. You're no longer wanted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Welcome to Dumpsville. Population <laughs> you. <laughs> So, so yeah, he, he apparently announced... You know, Amir everyone, today, gone tomorrow! <laughs> I'm, I bet he wish he'd got that in. <laughs> so, yeah, so Charles and Amir were gone, and Vitalik also announced that Ethereum was going to be a non-profit open-source project. The, de the decision was taken. And I, I, think he, I think he really stepped up. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he wanted to, but... He stepped up when he had to. And this later became known as um, the Red Wedding or, or kind of Game of Thrones Day. Because, <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, and as I said earlier, they were all kind of pretty into Game of Thrones. 
And it sounds like it was a real ordeal, especially for Vitalik. But I think for everyone, really. Because yeah, it's, it's, it's a stressful, emotional thing yeah. to do, you know, especially when people... Did they not get any sort of remuneration? No, they did, actually. They did. So they, although, although they were no longer involved with Ethereum, um, I think uh, Vitalik also announced at the same time that, that they would also keep their allocations. So they did, they did get paid. Um, but they were no longer involved with the project. They were no longer, you know, uh, able to able to influence it in any way. But um, I think money-wise, they both did they okay. both did okay. And so after this ordeal, Vitalik wrote an email to his um, to sort of family and friends and complaining about you know this situation that he found himself in. There's a, there's a good quote from it which I'll read out because again I think this really sort of really kind of says a lot about him and the position he was in. He wrote he wrote. Um, <clears throat> I was thinking that I'd pass off the hard organizational work to a competent team of people so that I could focus on writing code and solving difficult but fun challenges of crypto economics. But now it turns out that I have to be the one to keep the ship even pulled together in the first place. Mm. And I, again, like I really sympathize with him there. This was a guy like he just wanted to build his thing. Yeah. He just wanted to be developing it and basically sit in front of his computer and code all day long mm. and solve problems. And instead, he finds himself having to fire people and, mm. you know, manage and, and, and micromanage yeah. and, and, and be a, you know, be a, be a CEO yeah. and stuff. And again, I, I think that must have been tough for him. You know, that, that's the sort of thing that for the, right, for the right sort of person, that's no problem. Some people have no problem going, right, you're not, you, you don't measure up, you're fired. But I think, I think it, to be able to do both is, is pretty impressive. Yeah. Because, you know, you're either a creative mm. or a, you know, uh, a manager. Yeah. If you're both, it's kind of, that's, that's, it's tough to do that. Yeah. You, do, you very rarely get that. Well, he was, he was forced into it. Mm. But, um, yeah, he, he, made, he made the decisions that had to be made, I think. So, so this is where we are. So, so basically, Charles and Amir are now gone. Um, that's not to say that there isn't kind of bad blood and disagreement still in the air, but it has kind of released some of the pressure. So the rest of the developers continued working on getting Ethereum ready to launch. These arguments about money and a whole load of other things still kind of rumbled along in the background. Um, and there are a few other developments. I mean, there's so much that happened in in this time in Switzerland, and there, there isn't poss there isn't possibly time to go over it all here. But they, these those two books I mentioned, which I'll leave in the show notes, they do go into sort of all the detail you could want. It's great. Um, but a couple of things worth mentioning is that in order to keep Ethereum on the non-profit course, a, a Swiss Shiftung was established. What is that? So basically, this is a, a Shiftung is an entity overseen by the Swiss authorities uh, that makes sure the funds that the organization receives are allocated properly towards the development of the projects in question. Okay. Um, so, so it's kind of like an escrow of allocation. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's basically designed to make sure that yeah, it, it, that that the income funds the project rather than just get skimmed off as profits. Mm. You know, obviously people need to get paid and all that sort of stuff, but, but any, they're a bit any more meticulous are, with it, saying, "Okay, cool, this is a thing. We can put that back into it." Okay. Yeah, and this was a necessary step. This was a kind of necessary legal step that had to be taken in order for this crowd sale to finally go ahead, and it wasn't until. July the 22nd, 2014, that the crowd sale actually kicked off. 
And um, this was after, obviously, the Shiftung had to be established. There was a ton of legal discussion going on behind the scenes, which is far too boring to go into here. But, yeah, eventually the crowd sale happened and it lasted 42 days. Now, this is where this is where you, you realize, again, what a bunch of geeks we're dealing with here. But, um, it lasted 42 days because 42 is from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> It's the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. 42. 42. So they're like, yeah, it's got to be 42 days because we all love The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Geek geek out to the max. Now, this crowd sale brought in around – it was conducted in Bitcoin. So it brought in around $18 million worth of Bitcoin. But they then sort of set to arguing. Some Half the people were like, right, we should sell this Bitcoin now – and change it into fiat so as we can pay people and you know cover all the costs of running this running this organization obviously these costs are going up all the time and other people especially joe lubin who was sort of the you know the money man he had his hands on the purse strings um he was like no no we should no we can't we can't convert it yet we need to sell it it might go up there were all sorts of other implications anyhow unfortunately for them the price of bitcoin declined quite a lot in this time so they ended up only getting around $15 million. So they kind of lost out on three, three million bucks mm. uh, because they didn't sell the Bitcoin as it came in. Um, and then finally, after a load more internal strife, more kind of arguments and stuff, Ethereum officially launched on the 30th of July 2015, which I think is, is a good, good point to kind of bring this episode to a close. So... I just want to, yeah, just to just to sort of round it off. I mean, so it basically took from Vitalik having this idea of this platform on which you, this blockchain platform on which you could build anything that wouldn't just be for one particular purpose. The, took the about, uses are, are endless. Yeah, yeah, they really are. Uh, so it took about two years for this initial idea to actually become a real thing. And... All these clashes of personalities, there, were, there was a lot of greed involved. I don't think you can get away from that. Um, and the fact that they were all trying to, as I said, do something that hadn't really been done before. I think these are all factors in why it took so long. It was, it sounds nightmarish at points, mm. but I think it must have also been pretty cool at times. You know, when things were going well and when people had managed to stop arguing for five minutes, it must have been quite cool to be there and, and building this thing. And Yeah, I'm not sure cool. No, I, th- <laughs> I think that... <laughs> interesting. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. fascinating. Cool if, you're, cool if you're... If that's your sort of thing. Cool maybe, maybe. Maybe I'm being a bit uncool. I mean, yeah. I mean, for... People like us, we're just so on another planet. Cool, <laughs> can, uh, we can't look down on the on these mere mortals who are building Ethereum. Um, but yeah, so there we are. Um, as I say, uh, end of July 2015, Ethereum finally launches into the world, and there is, I can tell you, a lot more fun in store for Ethereum. Oh, yeah. from this point on, which we will start to look at next week. So next week, yeah, we'll dig a little more into Ethereum's history, but I also want to start looking at some of the things that it makes possible, some of the things that uh, Ethereum basically brought to the crypto space, which is the real kind of, which is the really important stuff yeah. to know about Ethereum. But um, again, like I said earlier, I think um, 
I think the history of it is so fascinating. All these characters, and we'll see more of a lot of these people uh, as we go along. And of course, a lot of them, especially the likes of Vitalik, Charles Hoskinson, Gavin Woods, are still really big names yeah. in the crypto space. And what happened to Amir? Amir, and well, the other guy, Charlie, Amir, Charlie Hoskins, Ho- Charles Hoskinson. So he, yeah, so he's 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 um, the CEO of Cardano. Oh yeah, that was it. And then there's the other one, Polkadot, or something. Uh, yes, Gavin Wood is Polkadot. So yeah. those are kind of two rival platforms for Ethereum. If, 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 but Amir, what, what what do we know about him? Amir Chetrit, like I said, he's a he's the most mysterious of the bunch. I think he now sort of. He basically took his money and kind of faded into the background. He's probably having a very nice time. He's probably on a yacht, Mm. not listening to this. Yeah. Having a, uh, yeah, having a... Nice cup of tea. Nice. (laughs) I hope so for his sake. That would be great, wouldn't it? Um, And yeah, I mean, everyone is, everyone is kind of still involved in crypto to to some extent or other. But yeah, I guess the, I, I, I guess the sort of big three that emerge from this are Vitalik, obviously, and Charles Hoskinson and Gavin Wood. But there's a lot more to come from those guys next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Coin Bureau podcast. If you'd like to learn more about cryptocurrency, you can visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Coin Bureau. You can also go to coinbureau.com for loads more information about all things crypto. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Coin Bureau, all one word. And I'm also active on TikTok and Instagram as well. Uh, first of all, uh, it's not... Thank you for listening. You're welcome for great content, yeah? Like, this is free. And they're learning about a fairly great topic in a non-boring way. If you'd like to visit me and hear more about me, go to Moochabout, M-O-O-C-H-A-B-O-U-T, or else. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Coin Bureau Podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.